0: It's the My Michelle Live podcast. Looking for the God story and news of the day. My Michelle Live News and Views. Here's Michelle. Hey, thank you for joining in the fun today. We call this News and Views Thursday. News, Views, and And politics, by the way, in a new study, a researcher from the University of Nebraska found that 40% of us cite politics as one of the top stressors, literally making us sick. Losing sleep, breaking up relationships, depression, hopelessness. What is the real state of the nation? And I think a lot of the, maybe this year, we could give 2022 a theme already and it would be confusion and division sometimes though we can learn a little bit from history we can learn from uh, those who have walked before because while we might say these are unprecedented times i would argue there's really nothing new under the sun and i wanted to introduce you to a new book that I think you will love. It'll give you a little insight into the political system that we're all so baffled and sickened by right now. The author joins me today, Dr. Frank Sorrentino. He is a a researcher, Uh, He is a writer, but interestingly enough, Frank comes with a rich background with the American political system, and I am so excited to have you on today, Frank. Thanks for joining us.
1: Well, it's great to be with you, Michelle.
0: What a time in history, right? If you were to give 2022 or even 2021 a theme, what would it be?
1: I, I would say division, polarization. I think fear. I I mean, keep on coming up with adjectives. Uh, <laughs> but I think uh, our lives have been transformed in a in a very antagonistic way, particularly to our fellow Americans.
0: Yeah, indeed it has, and it's. Uh- I I think that looking at the administration, for example, as you talk about presidential power and some of that struggle with between the president, bureaucrats, and other politicians, how that plays out, the place that we're at today is quite confusing. I think that we have gotten away from, like in the media, from true reporting and leaned more towards propaganda. Uh, we see a lot of propaganda that comes out of all sides of politics. So it's really hard to know what's true and what's not. How, how much has that weighed in in the political process in the past versus today?
1: Well, I think it has greatly exacerbated our problems. Uh, when we think back, we didn't have cable TV. And cable TV, I think, has transformed our lives with 24 seven coverage, and the internet has changed our lives. Now, a lot of these things have had a lot of beneficial effects, but one of the negative effects is that while uh, trying to attract an audience, uh, when you have so many different options, you move to a very identifiable group of people, and that creates the, the crisis. If I were to be like the old Ed Sullivan show, which is maybe dates me a bit, but you'd have a little bit of music, a little bit of magic, a little oh. bit of dancing, some rock and roll, uh, no one could survive by doing that today. Wow. What you have to do is focus on one particular area, and then in news, we focus on one political ideology or identification of a political party.
0: So we have that tendency anyway, right, to tribe up. We, we like to get with people who we are like, who think like us. And there's actual physical evidence of that, that it releases dopamine. It makes me feel good to be affirmed and not challenged of course I love your analogy to Ed Sullivan because the teenagers who couldn't give two rips about the the uh, dancing poodles and the spinning plates uh, flocked in mass to see the Rolling Stones or the Beatles or some uh, and yet you had to sit through even as families they would sit through and watch the astronaut you know drawing on just so i could see the the rock and roll band i wanted to see or vice versa parents would have to listen to that loud rock stuff and and they would sit through and then they would giggle at the clown that would come on and or the mime so looking back and if you you're too young to know what who ed sullivan is man you you need to know your american history that is the most glorious example that was a way we all sat together in as america and endured each other, learned from each other, um, whether we liked it or not.
1: Absolutely, we were exposed to all of the cultural and intergenerational aspects of society. Now we have the luxury of just focusing on the one thing that we like and the one group of people who agree with us. And I think that that has had uh, negative consequences, obviously. The benefit is that you could watch all the jazz you want. You could listen to, you know, any science fiction movies on a channel. But the problem is that we're increasingly isolated. And that isolation and ignorance, I think, creates or uh exacerbates intolerance.
0: Great. So we're already we were already isolating, like self-isolating by moving towards migrating towards the information that makes us feel good, that agrees with us, that supports our mindset. And then I would think that pretty soon when you go down that road, it doesn't almost doesn't matter if it's really true or not. You, you, you excuse and we see that on all sides of the political spectrum we excuse information that oh, that doesn't sound quite right but most of it's right and it leads us down a slippery path so we're already self-isolating then the pandemic hits and we isolate more <laughs> social distance and you only have the ability to be near the people that you choose to be near if they choose to be near you what a messed up time in history, to be sure. I would think that even uh, in the past we've seen with that presidential struggle that you talk about in your book, we've seen a lot of propaganda, spin doctoring, uh, giving a message, taking a truth and putting the spin on it, to make it sound a little more palatable or to speak to your base, Uh, that's always been part of the human condition, I would think, where especially where America's concerned. How much more so now, and how does that play into uh, where we're at today, in your opinion?
1: Well, I I think you've uh, set it up beautifully. I think what's happened as we become more specialized, more technically orientated, most of us know more and more about less and less <laughs> and therefore <laughs> our, our <Ouch>. ability- <laughs> A little depressing you know, at that but I Don't pull I any punches there, us... Frank.
0: You just let us know what you think there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll try. Uh, I, I think it makes us less capable of understanding uh, some of the developments and make us more vulnerable to, as you've identified, propaganda. And propaganda is not the monopoly of any particular group, uh, but it does work effectively when you have a, and I I hate to use this word, because we could be very knowledgeable in one sense, but very ignorant in another. So, so much of politics and the changes we're dealing with uh, involves things that we don't know. And therefore, we're more subject to propaganda and misleading information.
0: Okay, that makes sense. But at the same time, we're told by bureaucrats and technocrats that, oh, just leave this to the experts. But then they selectively choose the experts. I I think that that's very apparent in the coronavirus uh, response. It's very apparent, as we'll talk a little bit more in some of our response to racism and voting rights. Uh, We have or even the economy where the president leans on the same 16 people, uh, there's no diversity, again, in thought or input. And so when you leave it to the experts well which experts because there's a lot of them and they all say differing things and it used to be uh, the idea was well you do what science does you battle it out you bring up an idea a theory uh, a hypothesis, and then someone with some ridiculous idea challenges it you don't like it but you fight it out and you find out and truth kind of comes to the surface we don't do that anymore frank
1: no we don't uh i think a lot of this goes back Uh, to the beginning of the 20th century. And in the progressive era, uh, Woodrow Wilson was a firm believer in government by experts, which uh, transforms, let's say, democracy as we traditionally knew it from legislative to this government by experts, the administrative state. Now, as you so aptly put it, uh, who picks the experts. And so there isn't this consensus on what experts agree. And experts experts have interest. They're not value-free. Uh, they, as a group, have uh, advantages and disadvantages to policies uh, that uh, benefit them or hurt them. So they're not immune from politics. They're not immune from uh subjectivity and political interest
0: itself. There you go. And even consensus to me is good. Peer reviewed is good. But the dangerous side of that, and my thought is that when we say consensus, we have this idea of, uh, well, let's liken it to that term settled science Uh, just because there's a consensus doesn't mean that it's necessarily true. So bringing in other ideas and challenges allows you in that position of of consensus and power to say, well, let's look at the fact, oh, wait a minute, there may be some truth there. We might need to shift a little bit, but we are unshiftable. We have just become so rigid. And I think that leads to our division. Maybe that could lead to some of the issues that we're seeing Recently, voting rights, for example, we had the president uh, talking about voting rights and that uh, we need to have better voting access. And it's a racial issue. Uh, He even cited in his last press conference that there was a record number of people voting. Uh, But we need voting reform. It's like, well, what is it? (laughs) You know, if you have a record number of people voting, then it seems like eh, people have access. But we've turned it into a racial issue and it's become very rigid and very focused on my issues and then we're using we're using spinning we're using uh e- emotion uh, more division to try to perpetuate an issue uh, which really sh- really shouldn't be political but yet there it is again
1: i uh, uh yes michelle i think one of the things that happens is that the demonization of the other is an effective way of bringing out your group uh, and your group doesn't necessarily have to be the racial group or ethnic group. It could be your ideological group, your economic interest groups. So if you say the other side is evil or the other side is yeah. attempting to perpetuate an evil, uh, that shuts off all debate and makes people fear. And once that fear enters into it is no longer a rational discussion. Democracy becomes almost impossible to operate when people think that there are actual enemies. Now, in some Mm. instances, there might be some enemies, but in overwhelming cases, it's people with differences of opinion and differences of philosophy and ideology.
0: You're right. But, you know, we don't overcome evil with evil, we overcome evil with good. So uh, demonization, uh, while you could point out, maybe there is an actual evil that's going on, but we're still talking about people. You know, this is where we switch from people with maybe an evil idea, or a bad idea, or a fallen idea, or a wrong idea. And we Identify them with the evil instead of looking at people as people as fellow, fellow human beings and in my I have a more of a faith-based ideology you know image bearers of God has been a, a, a term that people have used I like that you know I like that that, that gives you worth and purpose we've gotten away from that uh, what is it called uh, you know when you deal with illogical arguments and there's ad hominem you know the straw man argument they have developed uh, a new one that they call ad hitlerism so where you take something and you say well this is just like what the Nazis did and you're just like Hitler and that's boom okay what do you say to that now you've you've become the ultimate evil you must be brought down so I I see that that has really led to division and we thrive in it but also at the same time I think we're tired of it and we're starting to some for some people we're starting to see this isn't working uh, the voting issue, for example, uh, when the president stood up and utilized, uh, demonization in his speech and saying, you know, you're, you're like this, or you're like this person and we fought hard. He didn- negated to say that he was on the side of the people who were fighting for segregation, who made extreme racial comments. The importance of that isn't for me to demonize the president. The importance to that, to me, Frank, is saying, look, we are complex people made up of good, bad, ugly, beautiful, stupid. When we can't admit our own mistakes and we can't say, hey, let's learn together. We have to shore ourselves up with some false uh, heroic type uh, facade. And I think we're doing a lot of that in politics.
1: Yes, I I think, Michelle, what's happened is. Uh, we've uh, sort of developed the old morality plays. Everything is good (laughs) versus evil. And I think most of the issues that we deal with are gray. You know, we're not talking, uh, people don't like to use black and white, but most things are in between, in the middle. As Aristotle used to talk about the golden mean, but clearly, clearly the the notion of using Hitler or Stalin-like, analogies or grouping together uh, that shuts off debate. Uh, Sometimes you could do it to shock. I used to do it in my, my class, but I would try to do both sides and say, well, you know, uh, Jimmy Carter was like, uh, like Lennon and uh, Ronald Reagan was like Lennon. Just to show the absurdity of it, because anybody could take one or two aspects. Remember, Mao Zedong believed two plus two was four. So you could attribute anything to Hitler and <laughs> Stalin and Mao and whatever. So uh, the dehumanization of uh, of uh, our debate and not looking at arguments, but rather pushing it to the emotion and the emotion, uh, we're emotional people, uh, but uh, the Greeks believed Uh, very clearly that rationality should dominate we don't deny uh, that people have emotions but we should stick to the evidence and to arguments if democracy is to work
0: well put there has to be some balance though because in history uh, it repeats itself so while we see some of uh, some likeness to some of the downfall of the of brilliant people in Nazi Germany for example you know great everyday people love their families part of their community and yet they were okay with reporting their Jewish neighbors and sending them off to concentration camps. How the heck did that happen? We do have to learn from that. We do have to see where there are some ad Hitlerisms in our society. We need to learn from that, but maybe part of the, the issue is uh, where you separate emotion from rationality. You touched on that. That's brilliant.
1: Well, that's the delicate balance. And the idea that anybody knows the magical elixir that is to be used for all times, I think one has to be humble and to realize that different times require different mixtures. But clearly, when you use the example in Germany, I think it's the most fascinating example because the Treaty of Versailles was a very punitive uh, treaty, and it humiliated the Germans. And to a large degree, uh, the treaty benefited the French and the British uh, mostly. They took over their colonies, they uh, got reparations. Okay. And we should know that uh, someone like Hitler Uh, Or someone like anybody in in politics could exploit that. Mm -hmm. Aristotle said it's not enough to win the war. You have to win the peace. And winning Um, the peace is the most difficult part. And you don't do it by demonization and dehumanization.
0: Are, are we going to learn from that, do you think? Do you think that the pendulum swings? I, I tend to be a pendulum person. We go absolutely crazy nuts with policy and thought and, and, and people just say, you know, this is ridiculous. So it, it, it kind of does this sometimes in society. That's my hope.
1: Well, I, th- <clears throat> I think it's all of our hopes because <laughs> what's going on is doesn't appear to be working. And it doesn't, it's not working not only on a policy level, it's not working on a human level. We're not happy. The right is not happy. The left is not happy. Different groups are not happy because we're living in a society where we're perceiving we're living among enemies. We're living among people who mean uh, enormous harm to us. So if the pendulum does uh, switch, I think uh, we could have a more rational discussion uh, of how public policy is without all of the ad hominems, all the fear, and uh, perhaps I think a better society. Uh, you know, you talked about the number of people who are depressed, the number of people who are totally isolated. It's hard to discuss politics. So <laughs> I taught politics almost 50 years and, uh, It was one of the most enjoyable things I ever had. It's become much more difficult because people automatically react and they don't want to listen. And so I hope the pendulum switches to a more balanced, more logical approach to things where we could disagree and disagree with, with still liking the other person.
0: I think talking about it like this is a help. Uh, We're not seeing it in the news. We're seeing more perpetuation of a a singular narrative. Um, I've been in the media forever, and I wrote in my book, which is not quite out yet, so I'm not pushing it yet, um, is uh, (laughs) when I saw the news die... And the news died for me, Frank. When I was a young broadcaster, I had written a news story about a politician that was coming to, to our city. And my news editor came in and said, Michelle, this is great. You, you're you're well written. This, this sounds really good. It was one of my first stories I actually wrote instead of just read. He said, but here's the problem. If you say it like this, you can have people think this and my heart fell on the floor. The news died for me that day, and I could not stop hearing it in the reports. It used to be a badge of honor to report something, and no one knew what you really felt. You could feel passionate about it, but no one (laughs) knew, because you were reporting information and news, not perpetuating an idea, and this is where we are strongly at here. And I think um, what I see, and uh, this is where I want your expert opinion, as you write on that, that struggle, for example, of the president and bureaucrats, you know, a lot of that has to do with public opinion, how the public feels and how they present their messages to win the appeal of the public. Thing is, though, we've always had a free a press that would push back and ask hard questions when you don't have that i think that's part of the problem and where we've started to fall apart what what say you uh
1: i agree uh, i would argue that the the press has been transformed not only from cable and other things like that but it's become a corporate press and that's ah, not yeah. in mm-hmm. itself evil but they're uh, the different, let's say, major media outlets are owned by major corporations which have interest, and therefore, most of those interests tend to be globalist interests, which are fine. One could argue global versus national in terms of the right balance, but it's overwhelmingly uh, part of an of organization that has to perpetuate ideas. It has to perpetuate policies. It has to perpetuate candidates. So the news is no longer the news. It's what you had said earlier. It it becomes propaganda to a very large degree. And it doesn't matter which side it is, but it's no longer a journalist or a researcher looking to find out the truth as best they could determine it. But it has to reconcile with their hierarchical uh, leaders and their hierarchical leaders aren't always interested in the truth. They're interested in the perpetuation.
0: That is exactly why, as a broadcaster of decades, I went to this venue, because in this venue, I do not have to, and there's people that I try to answer to for credibility, to be credible, to not just go off on my own tangent, but I I thought it was very important to have a outlet that doesn't have to be filtered through some hierarchy or some political uh, agenda. Uh, so I, I, I really respect uh, people who are probably doing it much better than I, but I'm glad to be part of, of that. And one reason I was really excited to have you with me today, Frank, is to kind of Pick your mind because of what I see reported and and people really there are people searching through okay what's really going on here you don't have a skin in the game so to speak so I wanted to kind of pick your your brain over some things like the current battle with filibusters uh, with voting issues with uh, what what is this first year of uh, President Biden really like we hear him talk talking about how awesome he is and how awesome things are going to be. And we're, you know, stay on target and we hear things from the media. I I just would like for you to opine on some of the top issues that are out there uh, from just a guy who's been studying politics for his entire and teaching politics and now writing a a great book on it for your entire career.
1: Well, that's uh, a a great challenge, Uh, but, Certainly, when we talk, let's say the filibuster. We'll just talk as as first. Uh, the filibuster is really very similar to what Robert's rules are in any organization, where one third of the of the group or the assembly could block the passage of of a particular bill by talking, uh, by continuing the debate. You have to call the question. Now, the filibuster has been modified over the years uh, from two thirds to 60. And so that was a major change. It was also changed when it came to uh, lower court appointees and to the Supreme Court. The problem is, is that the U.S. Senate was designed to preserve federalism and give equal representation to states. And that was part of the agreement. Now, when you change the agreement afterwards, oh. you are sort of like pulling the rug out from under. Uh, if you're gonna have federalism, I think you're gonna need the Senate and the Senate is gonna be the, the most deliberative body. Uh, the filibuster uh, obviously uh, is difficult to defend in terms of popular culture, but what it does do is forced compromise. Uh, You could have a bill and then you could uh, adjust it to get to the 60 votes. Uh, It's not all or nothing. So I think the filibuster still serves a purpose. And uh, what we've seen is this, like uh, uh, during the Trump administration, the Democrats used the filibuster about 300 times. So it's not something Mm. that uh, they are opposed to using. As a matter of fact, they used it uh, last week uh, on the Nord Stream 2 uh, when Senator Cruz wanted to sanction it. Uh, So I think the filibuster is uh, very often we say uh, where you stand on this issue is where you sit. If you're in the Mm. majority, (laughs) you want to eliminate it. When you're in the minority, you want to keep it.
0: Well put. It's interesting. We are uh, a democratic republic. You know, if we were just a democracy, well, then majority rules, right? Uh, but you have a, this democratic republic where. I might be the minority, but I still matter. And that's what I hear you saying. The m- minority still matters. And we see yes. that we had seen that played out to a degree on the streets. We don't like how things are run. So we're going to protest. We're going to have our, our, our voices heard. We matter too. These are the rules. This is what's happening. But we we want to be heard. We want to be part of this process. That's part of our our nation and part of our politics and policy as well but another issue uh, of current times is how we take that to the extreme we feel that we can take over like here in my city an entire you know section and call it an autonomous zone overrun a police station uh, burn down buildings uh, break windows uh, we we just it's as though we don't know when to stop like we My goodness, we're a nation of spoiled children that don't know when to stop. You know, if it means I have to throw a tantrum and somebody gets hurt, then so be it. I got to have my way. So where do you find balance?
1: Well, yeah, uh, violence cannot be an acceptable way of dealing with issues,
0: but it has been. And we've seen politicians say, yeah, we've got, this is, you know, this is just the logical thing that happens. And you know, this is, this is good. It's good. Once again, where you sit is where you stand.
1: Exactly. Uh, I think you, one of the problems that we faced is that there's not the perception and maybe not the reality of equality in front of the law. If one group violates through violence, they should suffer the consequences as well as the other group. Uh, One of the things about people like Gandhi and Martin Luther King was that if if they believe that if you violated the law, you should accept the consequences of the violation of the law to persuade public opinion. But what we're seeing now is people want to violate the law and not suffer those consequences, which is a negation of the law and a negation of what democracy is, because you're not out to persuade, you're out to intimidate. And I think that's a very dangerous- Okay, uh, so how does that
0: play into the filibuster? Because I think that there is a parallel story there.
1: Well, some people feel, and this is a, a legitimate question, Uh, of whether the American governmental system, which was created, you know, basically in 1788, 87, uh, is adaptable to the modern changes of society. People demand a much quicker response. And uh, that is uh, something that we have to look at. On the other hand, uh, if you believe in the American system, in which is a system of checks and balances, of due process, then law is gonna change incrementally, but it preserves individual liberty. So you have to find again that balance of how do you become adaptable, but at the same time, preserve the values that you believe in, such as individual rights, individual rights and liberties, Oh. Are the core values of American uh, political system now? Are they perfect? No, but I think you could throw out the baby with the bath water, as we used to
0: say. <laughs> and I think it comes back to maybe the lesson of the day today is again recognizing people as people, fellow humans, fellow citizens. We're in this together. You have a legitimate idea, you have an, a, a legitimate thought, a, a, a legitimate concern. It may be completely opposed to how I feel, but I you have a right to say it and I should have an obligation uh, to to listen goes back to recognizing you as an image bearer of God something important and i I, I like that because it brings it back to the simple We can talk about complex issues and politics and complex subjects but it comes back down to something simple you're important and when we start viewing people as important it does make a difference in our society and even in our family as I started the show, Uh, stating that politics are making 40 percent of us sick and a a big majority of those people say it's broken relationships. I mean, that breaks us on a, a fundamental level. And this is where we need to get back to recognizing that get away from the emotion, get back to the reason and recognize people as important and, and as we celebrated martin luther king day on monday that was a lot of his message that we've gotten away from do you remember when he said no justice no peace um we've turned that into if there's no justice there's not going to be peace and i'm going to make sure of it and what he was saying is if there isn't justice we're not going to have peace in our hearts
1: yes and uh The uh, Judeo-Christian message of Martin Luther King is often overlooked. He believed that both Christianity, mostly, and uh, the liberal creed of the framers were persuasive tools to persuade people. Uh, So I'm going to appeal to your morality. I'm going to appeal to your belief in God if you believe in God, then you should include black people. If you believe in liberty, you should include black people. So he was the ultimate persuader. And protest is perfectly normal in a democracy. What's not normal or what is not effective often is when people decide that they are above the law. Accept the violence. Even when we talk about John Lewis. uh he took some bloody beatings, but he didn't fight back. And that morality of saying, this is what I believe in, I'm not gonna challenge you as a police officer or as a sheriff or a governor, but I'm gonna show that I believe so strongly that I'm willing to take these awful beatings. And that was such a powerful message That John Lewis gave was a powerful message that Martin Luther King gave, uh, that uh, Mahatma Gandhi gave when dealing with the uh, British control over the subcontinent. Uh, The idea of protest is imperative in a democracy, but the protesters have to know what their purpose is. Is their purpose to perpetuate democracy or to end democracy on their terms?
0: There you go. And taking the high road historically seems to have had much more power. As you mentioned, the appeal to uh, to morality, the appeal to uh, a belief in something bigger, maybe the appeal to God, uh, to God, that seems to be what has been the most powerful factor in every single movement of uh, of of protest.
1: I I agree, Michelle. I think that one of James Q. Wilson, a great political scientist, said that we have a moral sense and that we want to be moral people. And a lot of our morality is tradition-based. We're not going to change America to a non-Christian nation overnight. We could say that's highly undesirable in the hearts of many. But to know what it is that we are appealing to. Uh, if we're appealing to the Declaration of Independence, if we're appealing to the New Testament, are we appealing even to uh, other philosophers? You know, like Voltaire would say, "I disagree with everything you said, but I will defend yeah. my life uh, for you to say what you what you believe." Uh, what are the higher moral principles? And those higher moral principles are essential as a uh, deliberating aspect, as a confirming aspect. And therefore, we accept the legitimacy. I mean, the genius of Martin Luther King was that he was able to make major changes in American society, things that needed to be done in overwhelmingly uh, people's minds. But he did it in a way that most of the people that he was against was able to transform them and accept. Today, we are a very different society uh, as a result of Martin Luther King and his philosophy. And it was that appeal to uh, morality, appeal to the philosophy of the American Constitution. And I think there's a lot to learn from that. Oh, so much. Very, very human. So much.
0: And very human, though, as well, because in in recent years there have been issues that have come up about uh, Martin Luther King's uh, sexual discretions, for example. And so, you know, you you get to the point, oh, well, should... Should we cancel him? We look at uh, American history and we see great men like George Washington and uh, Thomas Jefferson that owned slaves. Should we cancel them? Uh, No, you learn from them and you see some of their writings and even in their writings, the change of mind and heart that was coming towards slavery. If you cancel those things, you don't learn from the good and you don't learn that you're fallen too. You're not perfect either. When you recognize the imperfection in yourself but you can still live with it i can maybe recognize the imperfections in you and still live with you <laughs>
1: <laughs> well i got into a little bit of trouble when i uh, was doing my book on the fbi war against martin luther king and uh obviously in their surveillance they detected you know certain activities personal activities uh, that might have been uh, subject to moral rebuke. Uh, clearly, he was human. And uh, clearly, that made him vulnerable by engaging in those activities. And That's true with every single human being who has ever been on the face of the earth. Uh, the idea that we're going to cancel or destroy or take down their statue, I think is, is so misguided. Uh, because uh, there is no one who uh, who could ever say anything because they've done something poorly in the past, immoral in the past. Uh, I mean, I'm a big follower of uh, young uh, psychology. We all have the shadow, and that shadow is, un- is part of our humanity. And when we overcome our you know, bad desires, so to say, it makes us even better. Uh And uh, clearly, one of the things that we've done is we've taken this information that we could have about anybody and then use it to destroy them and destroy their arguments. And that's clearly the ad hominem and the ad Hitlerism, as you mentioned earlier. We could do that to any single human being. Including myself, I mean uh, the no, idea is that... no, <laughs> but uh, I hope not too bad. But, uh, <laughs> the re- but the reality is, is that this is uh, an age of silliness. <laughs> uh, when we when we get down to it, uh, there there can be no rational discussion. If you're not perfect, then you can't make the argument. Well, uh, then no one can make an argument.
0: Well, put. and that
1: goes to your point. Of uh, humanization.
0: Do you have just a couple more minutes? I have one more uh, thing I wanted to discuss. Thank you so much for being so generous. I wanted to talk about maybe get ahead of the uh, State of the Union before it happens. We have, you know, for a month before we're going to hear um, as our president really has. And this is he's only done two press conferences in this entire year of I mean, big, huge things from Afghanistan, COVID, border issues, uh, supply chain problems. We've only heard two press conferences, which is absolutely stunning to me. I'm wondering if there's any uh, presidential precedent to that, you know, if we've seen that. And, and maybe giving your frankisms of uh, the, <laughs> the, the look uh, into the first year of this administration.
1: Well, uh, this has been historic low. I mean, uh, Franklin Roosevelt was the first one really to have the press conferences as we know it. And they were many times impromptu. Uh, We certainly saw uh, people like JFK uh, use the press conference where he could display his wit, his charm. uh, (laughs) Right. And And we saw Trump
0: couldn't stop getting in front of the camera. And Trump was
1: terrific. Uh, he gave access to information. This is a real problem. Uh, uh, James McGregor Burns, who was a great political scientist who wrote on leadership, uh, talked about how important it was to engage the population and press conferences are a way in which the president has to answer questions. And when the president is not available then that is a great disservice, I think, to democracy. I think it was also a disservice on how the campaign took place. Again, under the notion of COVID, uh, he didn't really campaign. Uh, for the most part, there were some issues of, uh, of policy papers. But for the most part, he had very little engagement with the, with the public. And I think uh, that has not served him well. The problem that he faces is the problem that I think uh, American politics faces is that right now, whether it's the Republicans or Democrats, the the money that goes into campaigns is much more centralized. So a person like a Nancy Pelosi or someone like a Mitch McConnell has an enormous uh, possibility of determining how their members have to vote because he distributes law or he or she distributes large sums of their campaign. They also have the capacity to run primaries against people. So there's far more party discipline than there was in the past. Some people call it the nationalization of our politics. The problem that I think uh, President Biden has had is that he's become captured by both the Speaker and the Senate Majority Leader Schumer and is incapable of broadening out his support. And that has made him at 35%, 40%, depending on which political poll you have, and the key,
0: it's, it's an is F we'll in- just say he's, he's getting enough. If you were in school, that would not that they do that. They do uh, what's satisfactory and unsatisfactory yes. now or whatever. But in my day, that's enough.
1: That's it. And independents have abandoned him, uh, depending on again, which poll, but let's give a generous poll, which says that 33% of the people uh, who are independents uh, support him. Uh, that's devastating. That's devastating. He won the presidency uh, in 2020 with about 60%. Uh, And I think what's happened is uh, he's been unable to pivot to the middle. Uh, He made a deal, you know, with uh, people like Bernie Sanders that he wasn't the favored leader in the primaries, but when he made the deal after South Carolina... And uh, Clyburn's endorsement of him, uh, he he basically agreed to a lot of the agenda of of the extreme left, and I think that has made him a prisoner of that. Uh, Maybe I sound like, like those-
0: a conspiracy theorist, and and I don't want to do that, but I think it is a question that begs answering. Um, he clearly isn't in his prime and there is some concern i mean we we went through the questions when trump was president you know is this guy crazy is he a narcissist is he you had every psychologist or wannabe psychologist on uh right. afternoon shows talking about uh, giving him a diagnosis but we've seen little of that but yet we've seen babbling and we've seen him trail off into god knows where uh it should be talked about because the man has his finger on the red little red buttons so to speak. So we should know this. Who is really running the nation? And will even stand up and call, uh, say, well, President Harris. And you're like, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs> (laughs) who's pulling the strings Pinocchio and and that's something that we've had other presidents before who have been shored up you know who haven't been at their healthiest who haven't been at their best and you know they've put up this facade but uh, how many presidents in the past have you actually thought are they mentally capable of doing the task and if they aren't who's really running the show
1: right that's that's a great question but I think it goes to the other point When you campaign for the presidency, uh, there is a test where you see a person's stamina, their verbal capacities, Uh, their intellectual thought process. Uh, COVID, perhaps being given as an excuse, allowed for uh, Joe Biden to avoid a lot of those tests. And I think it's unfortunate. Uh, one could agree with him, but that's not how we should elect the president, by a president saying, well, I can't campaign because of uh, a virus. Maybe that was true, but it's not a healthy thing.
0: I don't know. Uh, We're we talking. Wanna, we it, you're across people. the country. You know, we manage. You know, so Yes,
1: yes. I And I, I think it was an excuse, but clearly uh, we never observed him the way previous campaigns, uh, Donald Trump, a lot of people don't like his personality, but his energy was there. His ability to focus was there. Uh, he was running these uh, rallies. We should see that on both sides. And I think uh, there should be also be a vigorous press. Uh, but we already talked about that before, <laughs> where the vigorous press has, has fallen and it's changing their agenda. So, I I think those are changes that we should demand in our political system. And they could be done by us as the populace uh, saying this is unacceptable behavior, whether it's crude behavior, whether it's demonization, whether it's hiding in the basement, uh, whether it is the distortion of facts, which happens all the time in propaganda media can sometimes uh, misinform population uh, tremendously. But uh, we as a population, maybe as you said, the pendulum will switch and we're gonna demand more from our politicians and demand not only from the presidency, but from the Congress. I mean, why should the leaders of the major parties have so much control over their members. We used to like to say all politics is local and where local politicians, congressmen, senators can embrace the values and the attitudes of their district. And now that's very, very difficult to do. And we're not getting that diversity of opinion, that diversity of perspective, which makes our politics increasingly insular and destructive.
0: We have gotten the opportunity to kind of sit under you and, and hear from your your years of experience and, and accumulative knowledge, and I have so enjoyed it today, Frank. I want my uh, listeners and viewers to see your book up here on the screen, Presidential Power and the American Political System. Uh, you liked our conversation today. You're going to love sitting through the book. It has been fascinating, and Frank... Uh, I think you leave us with a bit of hope because what you have been saying today really puts all of these issues that we talked about making America sick. And, and even the, the 60% who say, well, politics aren't making me sick. I'll tell you what, they're at least bugging you and they're affecting you. So I would say 100% of us are dealing with the effects of, of politics. But what I've heard you say continually is you're putting it back into the hands of we the people. We can make a difference, even if it's a micro difference in how we conduct ourselves in our own lives. It makes a difference in our families. It has a ripple effect, and I, I'm so encouraged by that. And I thank you, really, really thank you. Uh, and I, I well,
1: thank I, you, I, Michelle. I think you're making a difference because your your broadcasts are different than a lot of the broadcasts, which are solely on an ideological or on a party basis, it's a more human basis. So I, I congratulate you on that.
0: Well, thank you. So like this, share this. Uh, if you are watching or listening, copy and paste the link, give it to someone and say, yeah, you got, if you don't know who Frank is, then you gotta know Frank Sorrentino. He is the author of Presidential Power and the American Political System. And he's been my guest today. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Okay, thank you so much, Michelle. I I love being with you.
0: More news and views at MyMichelleLive.com.